Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This video class is a continuation of our series this summer in the Sermon on the Mount. These classes are brought to you by the Laurel Heights Church of Christ, McAllen, Texas. And even after the pandemic restrictions, these video classes will continue. This time, we are in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23. I want us to try and imagine standing before the Lord, arguing our case for entrance into heaven. I know because of our knowledge of and our appreciation of the grace of God, this is a challenge. We believe we do not merit an entrance into heaven, but that because of Christ's blood, we can enter through the obedience of faith. But for the purpose of highlighting that, and for the value of teaching others, I want us in this video to stretch our minds and think about or imagine standing before the Lord, arguing our case for an entrance into heaven. What might be said in such a case? So for our good thought, and perhaps for our use in teaching others, what might be said if one stood before the Lord to argue for their entrance into heaven? Someone might say, Lord, my parents didn't do a good job raising me to be a Christian. And so because of that family neglect, I stand before you asking that you take that into account and let me go ahead and come in. Please, Lord, make an exception in my case. If my parents had done their job, I would be here as a faithful Christian, but their failure prevented me from making the choice to be a Christian. I want us to consider, while parents have assigned responsibility to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, if parents fail in that duty, it doesn't mean their offspring are automatically saved or that they have a valid excuse to present before the Lord. The gospel message is for everyone, including those who haven't been raised by Christian parents. Back in Ezekiel chapter 18, there is an entire chapter showing that though your parents were evil, it doesn't mean you have to be evil. It may be harder, but not impossible. Listen to some of this. Ezekiel 18.20, the soul who sins shall die. 
the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteous of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. This chapter, Ezekiel 18, teaches very clearly individual responsibility. I can't use someone's neglect as my ticket into heaven. I stand before God as an individual without any plea to make to enter heaven because of my parents' neglect or someone else's neglect. We want parents to nurture their children toward good relationship with God. I had that. I'm so thankful. Many people watching this video, perhaps, didn't have that parental nurturing. But you made the choices when you heard the gospel. You were led to Christ by the gospel, and you've been righteous in your life. Parental neglect does not hand to the neglected children a ticket into heaven. So the Lord's answer is just, I never knew you if you didn't know me. Similarly, one might argue, my wife or my husband didn't support me in being faithful. It is a great encouragement and help when your spouse is right there with you serving the Lord. I've had that for 51 years. To worship together and pray together and give together and study together, to build your marriage and family on the solid foundation of devotion to God and love for Christ, it is a treasure. It is the way it should be. But if you don't have that, if you didn't have that, that does not mean you automatically get to go to heaven. There are single people who serve the Lord with great devotion, who are fully engaged in obedience to Christ, who participate in a sound local church, and who resist temptation. There are wives whose husbands offer no support, but those wives do what is right. There are husbands with wives who don't care about the things of the Lord, but they do what is good and right. It is impressive to me that there are so many single people, divorced people, who are alone in their homes, but never offer that as an excuse. So again, the Lord says, I don't know you if you didn't know me. Let's do that again. Well, Lord, my preacher led me astray. He said things that were not in the Bible, and I was deceived. Now, let's be really clear about this. Preachers are not the only ones with Bibles. And in fact, there is something God has assigned to everyone that can be called the duty of discernment. You see that at work in Acts 17, 11, where the people of Berea listened to preachers, but searched the scriptures for verification. And Jesus said in this same chapter we studied earlier, here in Matthew 7, back in verse 15, beware of false prophets. You will know them by their fruits. Jesus puts responsibility on the listeners. 
Paul and Peter warned about false teachers and false teaching. Never listen to a preacher and just swallow what he says. I don't care who he is and how much you like him and what he sounds like. Accept the duty of discernment. Open your Bible to see if what he says is correct. Use God's yardstick to measure everything. And do not assume that if you had a bad preacher, you've got a ticket to heaven. But Lord, this church I belonged to was so small, just a few people, and they were struggling. The New Testament documents a number of local churches, but never with any hint that number of people was essential or a contributing factor to anyone's failure or success. In the book of Revelation, seven churches, not in any one of those letters does the Lord condemn a church for being small. Smallness of faith was condemned in individuals. Numbers in a local church doesn't make that local church or the people in it strong or weak. Some of the greatest people I know grew up in churches of less than 50 people, some less than 30. No argument here to enter heaven. Lord, my problem was I was a member of a church so large I felt lost in the numbers. I'm going to make the same point. Nothing in the New Testament associates spiritual growth and faithfulness with how many or how few are around you. There are advantages to small churches, advantages to larger churches, but no argument can be made for entrance into heaven based on how many or few were with you in the local church. We can so easily get caught up in circumstances and preferences and locations and numbers that we cannot see what is really important. What is really important is my personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Involvement in a local church is essential, but the number of people, the architecture, the convenience of the location, the age of the preacher, so many things can distract us from what is simple and essential. Not everything is perfect in local churches, big or small or medium. But we cannot expect God to grant us a free pass into heaven because of the size of the local church. Is it sound? Is the teaching and practice being measured by, by God's yardstick? On the judgment day, all the excuses that people may try to rely on here on earth will have no validity at all. What if somebody just argues I was a victim? Lord, please let me in. I was a victim. People didn't treat me right. I was sick and nobody visited me. I was in distress and nobody helped. My parents didn't do me right. I had a variety of hardships. People didn't understand me on and on. Lord, I really had a hard life and just couldn't obey you consistently because of all my problems. I was a victim. People didn't treat me right. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. You remember this chapter is about faith, the activity of faith, perseverance in the faith, even during the time when you are a victim. 
illustrated in the New Testament. I'm at Hebrews 11, and I'm going to start at verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even <coughs> chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should be made perfect. Apart from us they should not be made perfect. And then he goes on in chapter 12 to recommend to us, laying aside every weight and running with endurance the race that is set before us. One of the strong and clear messages of Scripture is no matter how hard it is, whatever your disadvantages may be, whatever trials you go through, you trust God, you're able to be strong in your relationship with Him because you trust Him, you obey Him, and you run with patience the race that is set before it. On the judgment day, Assuming you tried to argue your case, none of these would enable you to gain access into heaven. So this lesson has been built on the hypothetical. We will not stand before the Lord with any opportunity to argue our case. We have no case. We have no excuse, as Paul wrote in Romans 1 verse 20. What we have is the blood of Christ unmerited by anything we've done, but received and applied through what is written in one phrase in this passage, doing the will of the Father. Sometimes people will ask us the question they think will stump us and embarrass us, who will go to heaven? In the end, who will be saved, our friends might ask. And they want us to name a group. We can do that. We can do it right in this passage we've studied. Listen again. And this time, listen for the Lord's answer. What is the Lord's answer in identifying the group who will go to heaven? Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says, 
to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Now, what's the group? The group is those who do the will of the Father. When we stand before the Lord on that final day, let's not even think of being prepared with a whole list of arguments and excuses and exceptions and pleadings. And let's reject such thoughts today. Trust in Christ and in his blood. Do what the Father says. When you sin, get back where you ought to be through repentance and do the will of the Father, remembering that heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. Thank you for listening.